Again, if you're visiting with us today, you've come at a good time. We're just kicking off a new series that should take us through the summer. And that's an in-depth look, a deep dive into Romans chapter 8. So please turn there with me in, in your Bibles. We did kind of an overview of, well, really Romans 1 through 8 last week. And now we're slowing things down and we're going to look at just the first two verses. If you were here last week, though, you'll remember that my voice wasn't. Um, And what I really wanted to do, and perhaps foolishly I I insisted on doing, was to read the whole chapter so that we get it into our hearts. I should have had Brian read it probably for us, Um, but I was being stubborn. And now I'm being stubborn again. Now that I have my voice back slightly, we're going to do the whole chapter again. So... Um, And this is not a waste of time. Uh, These words are words that you want to take with you through every trial in life. These are words of comfort, so it's good for us to get them in our heads and in our hearts and hopefully uh, maybe start to memorize them. You know, it would not be uh, a bad idea if you wanted to make it a goal for yourself or for your family uh, between now and the end of August to memorize Romans chapter 8 and maybe as... A guide for you. You can use whichever verses we're preaching on that coming Sunday as your memory verses for the week. So uh, we're doing verses 1 through 2 today, but let's, let's give attention to the whole chapter. I'll be reading from the ESV. That's what we have in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you need help getting there, it's page 944. <coughs> this is God's word. Hear it now as it comes to us from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God 
and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. And now I'll draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2. These are words worth reading again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 begins in the courtroom. Uh, The key word in verse 1 is condemnation. In Greek, katakrima. It means an adverse verdict. It's a verdict. It's a word that uh, the judge would have declared upon a convicted criminal. And that's the scene that Paul is taking us to in Romans 8 verse 1. We're in the courtroom. If you're not a fan of law and order or John Grisham... Well, that might not really interest you. This might not intrigue you, because, or, but it should, because this is no standard courtroom drama. This is your courtroom drama. Paul is giving us a window into what God the judge will say of us on that final day when we are arraigned before the ultimate throne, the throne of cosmic judgment. You know, in our world, some court proceedings are kept private from the public. They don't allow uh, video in or, or audio. Um, and, and so uh, we do not know uh, necessarily, in some cases, the verdict that is pronounced in that courtroom until the court is out of session. You have to wait till it's over. Well, we don't need to wait until the last day to learn of our verdict. Not only do we not need to wait, it's actually brought forward in time. It's brought forward in time. And for the Christian, the verdict is good news. There is no condemnation. And while that's amazingly good news, how does Paul frame this declaration in Romans 8.1? Look there with me. He doesn't say there's no condemnation. He says there is therefore now no condemnation. Which would imply that at one point there was condemnation, right? Well, what, what Paul's doing here is he's comparing two different uh, epochs or epochs uh, of time uh, by using that word now. The time before Christ, the time after Christ, the time of the old covenant, and the time of the new covenant. And if you remember from last week, we looked at chapter 3, you can turn there again, to verse uh, 20. And we said that this is the hinge upon the upon which the entire argument of the epistle turns. It's in Romans 3.20 where Paul writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Two different time periods. At one point, at one point, all God's people had was the law, which brought knowledge of sin. But now, now that Christ has come, a righteousness of Christ is provided, it's offered, it's proffered, it's manifested to God's people. And so there's these two eras that Paul is describing, these historical realities. But that two-era division is not just historical, it's personal also, isn't it? Because every person in this room and every person in the world falls under the influence of one of these two eras, either the before Christ old covenant era, that's how you're living, or the since Christ new covenant fulfillment gospel era. You see, without that, Without Christ, if you are outside of Christ, then Romans 8.1 isn't true of you. Romans 8.1 should say, there is therefore now still condemnation. 
So when he says, now there is no condemnation, yes, there's this historical reference here, but we can take that personally, right? If you're a Christian, you know what Paul's talking about. There was a time in which condemnation hung over your head. You had a death sentence. But now in Christ, things change. So this is where we need to begin our study. It's where Paul begins the first major portion of the epistle, detailing humanity's great problem. What's our problem? It's that we're guilty. It's that we're not righteous. It's that we're not right before the judge. There's nothing we can bring to the table that would warrant any kind of commendation, only condemnation. This takes honest self-reflection and assessment. In our day, many people thoughtlessly assume that we're all pretty good people and that there's no need to change. Uh, people assume they're inherently good. And really to imply otherwise or to, uh, to say that otherwise to somebody would be insulting. Who are you to judge me? They would say. Since they're good, therefore that entitles them to make any lifestyle decisions they want free from the judgment of others. If it seems right to them, that must be because it is right. And no one dare say otherwise. Well, let me dare say otherwise right now. We think evil thoughts. We say hurtful things, and we simply do bad stuff. This is what Thomas Cranmer summed up so beautifully in his famous prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and the desires of our hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And here's his conclusion, and there is no health in us. That's biblical. In fact, there, there is no signs of health to the point that Paul can say we are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. And the judgment, therefore, is a fitting conclusion to that reality. The judgment of being sinners is what? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And that's simply saying, you're already dead. We're just going now to make it official. You're dead in your sins. And so the judgment for that is the death penalty. We stand condemned before the judge. There is a death sentence hanging over us. So C.S. Lewis was right when he said that the Christian religion, quote, listen, does not begin in comfort, but in dismay. And it is no use at all, he says, trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. What's Lewis saying? What's he talking about? Was the cool people on social media like to say, uh, if you know, you know, right? If you're a Christian, you know what he's talking about. You know the comfort because you've known the dismay, the dismay of your sin, the dismay of your guilt, your own unworthiness. You know that if you're a Christian today, but that means I need to stop for just a minute and say to some of you here this morning that there is nothing more important that you need to do, nothing harder, but also nothing better than to sit with the reality of your sin. Because some of you have never done that. But you need to do that. You need to, or the gospel will never be good news. You need to own up to the reality of of your sin without any excuses, without any watering it down, without any shading of the truth. Acknowledge that you are guilty and guilty people like you deserve to be condemned. You need to own that because it's only when we've done that, when you've let the spirit do his work of conviction, 
that Paul's declaration, there is no condemnation, will mean anything to you. You see, uh, it's only to people who know their real condition that this sentence makes any sense at all. If you think you're a pretty good person, then you think Paul's just wasted some ink. There's no condemnation. Well, of course not. I'm a swell guy. I'm pretty good. Why should I be condemned today? Dear friend, do not be so foolish as to assume that there is no condemnation hanging over you. Don't be so foolish. Don't be fooled. And don't miss the good news. And the good news is that you can be justified. Right? Uh, Condemnation is the uh, the antonym to justification. If we put Romans 8, 1 positively, well, it would read something like this. There is therefore now justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. So before faith in Christ, condemnation was all that we had. But now in Christ, we have none. We have none. Once you understand that, then it is very... Um, Likely, at some point in your Christian experience, you will ask this sort of question, though. Could that really be true? Now you've owned your guilt, your sin. Now you sense your unworthiness. And this is good news that Paul's saying, but it almost doesn't, it almost sound too good to be true. Could it really be that there is therefore now no condemnation for a vile sinner as me? You've owned your sin, now you know who you really are, and you're thinking... That could be true maybe for some people, but I'm not those people. I'm not in that category. Could it really be true? That's, that's a question that plagues Christians. Well, Pastor Paul anticipates that objection, and he so wonderfully corrects it by emphasizing a single word in verse 1. I want you to look at your English versions there in Romans 8.1. Look at the text and think to yourself, what word is Paul Emphasizing What's he underscoring here? And it might surprise you. It's this little word, no. No. You see, the word in the Greek is actually emphatic. It's not using the normal word for no. It's a compound word that means something more like not at all. Um, uh, not even one. None whatsoever. So he has this emphatic word, and more than that, he takes that emphatic word and he puts it in the emphatic position syntactically, which is to say it's the very first word in the Greek sentence. And when you look at your English versions, it doesn't really come out that way, does it? It seems really just like a tiny little word, no, stuck in the middle of the sentence. But if we were to try to translate it a little bit more faithfully to what Paul had initially, it would sound something like this. No, none whatsoever, not even a hint, not a whit of condemnation is there for those in Christ Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? We think that, wow, that's amazing. And then we go, but what if, and Paul interrupts and he says, read my lips. No, no. There's a book that's hanging on, or not, uh, you know, on my bookshelf, up in my bookshelf uh, in my office. And, uh. It's called No is a Beautiful Word. And it's about, um, it's kind of like a self-help book about not overcommitting yourself to too many things and learning the power of saying no to people. And I've always thought that one of the small ironies in my life these past five years that I've had that book is I said a big fat no to it and that I've never picked it up and read it. 
But the title has stuck with me. No is a beautiful word. Christians can say that because God is saying that. God here is using this word, no, to assure me and you that there is nothing that can send us to hell if we are in Christ Jesus. We can come up with all the objections that we want, and the answer is going to, he, Paul will come back to, that God is coming back to, is no, no, stop it. Do you not understand what I'm saying? There is no condemnation, none whatsoever, not even a hint. Well, friends, I want you to test out the power of this tiny word when it's in the mouth of a mighty God and find the freedom and the assurance that God wants for you. And so we're going to try it out together. We're going to do something a little different. You're going, to, you're going to actually interact at this moment. I know Presbyterians are not good at talking during sermons. You know how I feel about that. I want some more amens. Um, but right now, you're not going to get in trouble. I'm, al- I'm giving you permission to talk, okay? And so what we're going to do here is we're going to practice giving the Romans 8-1 answer to the question that so many of us, the questions that so many of us have swirling about in our heads any given day. Paul says there's no condemnation. We have doubts. And the answer from Romans 8-1 is no. Everybody say that. No. Say it like you mean it. No. no. So let's, let's try it out. Paul says there's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ, and you're thinking, well, what about for repeated sins? No. What about for sexual sins? No. What about for sins I enjoy committing? No. What about sins I haven't even confessed to yet? No. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Right? You think, well, can we really be forgiven for sins we haven't confessed? Absolutely. Do you think you've confessed to every single sin you've committed? Don't fool yourself. No. Every single day we commit things that we're not even aware of. What about sins I'm not aware of? There is no condemnation. None whatsoever. Take that to the bank. You see, friends, God, when he says something, he means it. He never lies. And therefore, every word that comes from his mouth, we must believe. But boy... When he emphasizes something and he underscores something like he does here in Romans 8, then we really better believe it. We really better believe it. And when you do, you're going to have something that so many of us desperately need, and that is peace. Satan loves to make us afraid and to doubt. But the power of fear is sucked out completely by this little word, no. And that's why we can sing with Charles Wesley. No condemnation, now I dread. There's no dread at all. Because there's no condemnation at all. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. And Wesley's absolutely right. Jesus is the reason why nothing can condemn us. As the last clause of Romans 8 tells us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's, this is important to understand. Um, Paul is, is not saying that there's nothing worthy of condemnation in us. He's not saying that there's no reason that you could be condemned, that you should be sent to hell. He's not saying that those sins that nag at us and keep us up at night are actually not that bad. Don't worry about them. He's not saying anything like that. What he's saying is that if you are in Christ, Christ gets the final word on your status, not your sin. 
Praise God indeed. Christ gets the final word. This is how Donald Gray Barnhouse put it. He said, we do not read that there is no cause for condemnation in us, but that there is no condemnation for us. Certain, there is cause and a plenty. For we have a score of charges that have been brought against all members of the human race and a number of statements which have shown our own participation in the fallen position of the race even after we've been saved. Yet there is now no condemnation against us. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. The Lord is addressing men who are sinners. Though we are not condemned for our sin... And cannot be because we are in Christ Jesus. So what he says, the Lord is addressing men who are sinners. We're not not glossing over sin here. No, he's addressing sinners. But they're not condemned because they're in Christ Jesus. And then this is this last sentence from him that's so good. It would be just as possible to condemn Christ as it would be to condemn a man who is now in Christ. That's the blessing of justification. We are as free as Christ because in God's eyes, we are as righteous as Christ. And in all of human history, I don't think we've been given a better or more moving statement on the doctrine of justification than in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60 asks this, how are you righteous before God? In other words, how are you justified? Listen to this beautiful answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Here it is. As if I had never committed nor had any sin And had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept this with a believing heart. Oh, that last part is so crucial. Some of you here today, you're under the burden of unconfessed sin. You are outside of Christ. And here we have the answer. Here we have the solution. It could be for you in the eyes of God as though you had never committed a sin and had been perfectly righteous as Jesus was. Don't you want that? You need it. And this is how you get it. You receive it with a believing heart. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Believe it. Receive it. And know that there is no condemnation. But again, as we've said, it's hard to believe this. Right? As, as, as we own up to our sin, we think, can this really be true? Well, if you want more proof that you're really forgiven, that you're really justified, and that you're not condemned, well, we find that in verse 2. And verse 2 tells us, here's more proof for you. It's that you're set free. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so, friends, if God's Mighty promise from that tiny word, no, isn't enough to satisfy you. If the fact that you have the perfect righteousness of Christ is not enough to assure you, Paul points now to one other evidence. And we can put it like this. It's the absence of your chains. It's as though Paul's asking the question, if you think you're condemned, then tell me, where are the handcuffs? 
Where are the shackles? Where are the chains? Where are the bars? You look like a free man to me. You look like somebody who's been pardoned. Paul is saying that one perhaps could rightly conclude that they were condemned by God if they found themselves to be in prison still. But the Christian has been set free. Our freedom is that we now have a a new influence, a new power or principle, we we could say, at work in our lives. Paul calls it the law in verse 2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The, The power of the spirit has set you free from the power of sin and death. This is the way he used the term law in the majority of Romans 7 as well. But basically what he's saying is before our justification, we were, or we, we were, yeah, we were, we could say sin people. You know, that, that's, our, that's our heritage. That's our DNA. Who are you? I'm sin people. But after we're justified, we're spirit people. We have a new DNA. We have a new operation, a new controlling influence. Do we sin? Yes. Are we sinners? Yes. But it's not the pervading influence on our identity. Sin is no longer our master. So we no longer live as a slave to sin. We're set free. Before we were on a path to death due to sin. Now we're on a path to life due to the Spirit. The Spirit we confess in the Nicene Creed is the Lord and the giver of life. To have the Spirit is to have life. That life is is expressed. How do I know I have this life? Well, it's expressed and it's experienced, I think, primarily in terms of how we relate to the law of God. By obedience to the law of God. Without the Spirit of Christ in our lives, the law can only condemn us. All the law is is this gigantic mirror which, which we look into and it shows us all our faults, all our failures, all our shortcomings. It condemns us. But made new in Christ and influenced by His Spirit, we now delight in the law of God. Now, the law is not just a mirror that shows us our sin, but it's this map that we can use as a path to pleasing God. And we want to do that. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, a prediction of the new covenant is that God will write by His Spirit. He'll write the law in our hearts. So you see, now we have a stronger motivation for serving God than we ever did before. And we have a stronger power to enable us to serve God than we never had before. And both of those things, both the motivation and the power, come from the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in you. He's in you now. I mean, that, we read that all throughout Romans 8, verse 9. Uh, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in in you and so forth. Now that God himself is in our hearts, now we want to obey his law more than ever before. And not only that, now we can. Because it's not just us. It's not just our power. No, we've been set free. And so two things are wonderfully announced at the opening of Romans 8. There is no condemnation, number one. And number two, there is no incarceration. There's no incarceration. And both are true. Because we are in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, Jesus is not only interested in forgiving your sins. He's interested in mortifying them too. Do you understand the difference of a Savior who just says, I'll pardon you, but now you've got to figure out the rest on your own? No, when you're saved, you get a, a whole Christ, the whole Christ. 
You see, to be pardoned for our guilt but left powerless before sin, that's half the work of salvation. But we get the whole Christ. Christ does it all. The theologians used to call this the duplex gratia. That was Latin. It meant the double grace. The double grace of being a Christian is that you are justified and you will be, must be sanctified. You get both in Christ. And so I just want to say, if you're a Christian today and you feel like you're making very little progress in your faith, Maybe you just need to be reminded of the good news of Romans 8. You've been set free from sin, and you can never be condemned. And when that clicks, I assure you, you're going to start living a different way. You'll start to love God's law, and you want to live in obedience to it, not out of fear that it's going to condemn you, but out of gratitude that it never can condemn you. On February 11th, 1990, Inmate number 46664 finally stepped out from Victor Verster Prison in Western Cape, South Africa. Nelson Mandela had been imprisoned for the previous 27 years on account of his activism against apartheid. And in a speech immediately following his release, he made this fascinating statement to the citizens of South Africa. Let me quote to you from his speech. Friends, comrades, and fellow South Africans, I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. I stand here before you not as a prophet, but as a humble servant of you, the people, for your tireless and heroic sacrifices have made it possible for me to be here today. I therefore place the remaining years of my life in your hands? Who has made your freedom possible? Following this example, it seems like it would be a fitting thing to give up all the remainder, remaining years of your life in service to him, to place your life in his hands. May we give all that we have to Christ. For on the cross, he sealed our pardon, paid the debt, and set us free. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you paltry thanks for all that you've done for us. What could we ever return to you for all your kindness is shown to us. We've learned something actually of what we could do. We can give you our lives. You've set us free from the tyranny of sin. So now, knowing that we cannot be condemned, knowing that we have been released, would we give our lives over in faithful service to you, growing every day by your Spirit's power in godliness, dying to sin, and living to righteousness. Would you make it so? For you promised to do so by giving us a whole Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.